The scripture reading will be from 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to read beginning in, in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the days that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that we can gather together in your name. For all that you are to us, all that you have accomplished on our behalf, Lord, we thank you. We praise you, and Lord, we ask that you would just work in our hearts and our minds as we look at your word, that we would be just encouraged with you and all that you are to us, that our hope would be renewed and our faith, Lord, made strong and steadfast. Thank you, God, for this time, and we just do trust you to speak to us as you'd be pleased. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last night, um, as I left the office, got out to my truck and lifted the door handle on my truck, and it was full of peanut butter. There must have been half a jar of peanut butter stuck underneath the handle of my truck. So if you shook hands with me today and your hand smells like peanut butter, that is, that's why. So it took me half the night to get all that peanut butter out of my door handle, and then I finally opened the door of my truck, and it was just total darkness. So I got the hood unlatched and figured out that the battery cable had been disconnected. I was just glad the battery wasn't totally missing. Pray for the students at his hill. Many of them have yet to have gotten saved. We're going to speak today about honoring your elders. And the wrath of God. Seriously, um, 
We're going to be here in 2 Samuel 7. This is um, probably the climax of all that 1 and 2 Samuel has been pointing toward. It's what we call the Davidic Covenant. It is a highly significant passage in Scripture. It begins with David is living in his own palace lined with cedar. And that cedar paneling is a picture in the Bible of immense wealth. Most people lived in tents, and if they lived in a house, it was just a, typically just a stone house with a thatched roof or of some kind and, and very, very modest. But when you really started accumulating wealth, you paneled your house with cedar. And David is living in a king's palace. And he looks out his window, and God is dwelling in a tent. And David says, something's wrong with this picture. God's house shouldn't be inferior to my own. And so David sets his mind to build a house for God, a house of stone. And as he tells Nathan the prophet what his intention is, verse 2 The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But God wasn't in David's plan. And so that night, God spoke to Nathan and said, "Um, You may think you know what you're talking about, but you don't. David's a good guy. And there's nothing sinful about what he's planning on doing, but it is not my will for David. So you need to go back to David and humble yourself and say you were wrong and tell David he can't do this. So verse 4, but it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, you, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God's saying, I'm fine with a tent. I'm not asking for a building. I haven't complained about it. But David's going, we need to do something for God. And God's going, he can't do anything for me. When this temple finally gets built by Solomon, in Solomon's prayer of dedication, he will go, how can earth or the heavens contain God, much less this building that I have built? When Samuel, I'm sorry, Stephen in Acts 7 has to give an account for his faith and what he's been saying, He's going to be accused of of speaking against the temple. And Stephen just goes, well, since you brought it up, let's talk about the dwelling place of God. And Stephen just goes through the whole history of God, as God basically has done here in these first few verses, and said, basically, God doesn't need a temple. Stephen hadn't been speaking against the temple, but what he'd been saying is, God is our temple. And we have been made to be the dwelling place of God and for God to be the one who inhabits us. Israel was meant to be the dwelling place of God and every individual believer in the church of God today is the dwelling place of God.
So God says, beginning in verse 8, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build one for you. And there are a number of promises that come out here in this covenant. But before I get into them, it's important for us to to know something about covenants and specifically the covenants that God has made here in Israel. We know that God made a covenant with Noah and he said that he would never flood the earth again. And he gave us the rainbow as a sign of his promise that it would never happen again. So that Noahic covenant was with all of mankind. It is unconditional and it is eternal. And that is the nature of the covenants that God typically makes. Not all of them, but there are certain covenants, beginning with the Noahic covenant, that are for all of eternity and they are unconditional. And they do not depend in the least upon what we do for their fulfillment. But they're totally dependent upon God and what he would do. And usually when we come to one of those covenants, they're filled with the phrase, I will, with no requirement on the other party. And so the first of those covenants that God makes with Israel, it's called the Abrahamic covenant, and it's in Genesis chapter 12. And in that covenant, God promises three things to Abraham, things that he says, I will do. He says, I will make you a great blessing. And everybody that blesses you is going to be blessed and the whole world will be blessed because of you. God says, I am going to lead you to a different land and I will give you that land. And God says, I am going to give you a son. And then later we know that that son will ultimately, the fulfillment of the son be pointed toward David and then ultimately toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. God has promised to make him a blessing. God has promised to give him a land and God has promised to give him a son. Now from those, again, they are unconditional. They do not in the least depend upon Abraham. And we see that in the life of Abraham. God simply did it. Now an unconditional covenant can have conditions in it, but there are conditions to experience the blessing of God and not conditions to see God fulfill what he has promised because the fulfillment is totally dependent upon God. So those three promises to Abraham, blessing, land, and son, three more covenants come. So we have the new covenant, which we remember every time we have communion, that Christ inaugurated that covenant through the shedding of his blood. We have what we call the Palestinian covenant, whereas the land covenant, and that covenant is found in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. The new covenant is found in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. But then the third covenant that has to do with the son is fulfilled with God's promise now in 2 Samuel 7 to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. And it's also in 1 Chronicles 17. And so this Davidic covenant is filled with the formula, I will. There is nothing here dependent upon David. It is unconditional and it is eternal. There's not a time when it will not be um, valid. So there are at least seven things here that God says to David that he is going to do and that he can expect is going to happen. So picking it up in verse 9, he says, And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make 
you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. So a specific descendant who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we know this is speaking of Solomon. Solomon's the one who built that house. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That's a formula. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me, which was true beginning with David, then with Solomon, and then of each of the kings that sat on David's throne all the way up to the time of Jesus. And this is why when Jesus gets baptized, God will speak from heaven and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the other kings had been pointing toward, that there would be this father-son relationship between God the Father and the king of Israel. Then he says, concerning Solomon, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Saul committed sin. Remember, he, was, he only was partially obedient when God said, kill the Amalekites. And God said, that's it, I'm taking the throne away from you. Solomon will also be disobedient. And his disobedience is worse. He will become an idolater who will reintroduce into the land of Israel the worship of Moloch and Chemosh. And yet, and all that he does to turn the heart of Israel away from the Lord, God never turns away from Solomon. Because the covenant that he's made with David is unconditional. And God is saying to David, you will, you're, it will, this, the, the throne will never be taken away from your family. Never. No matter what they do, the throne is never going to be taken away from your family. And Solomon is a classic example of that. My loving kindness shall not depart. And so verse 16 is the summary verse of the covenant. Three things that God says. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me. So your house will endure forever. Your kingdom shall endure before me forever. And third, your throne shall be established forever. Three unconditional, eternal promises that God has made to David. An eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. So, in looking through this whole list, David is promised an eternal house. One of David's sons would be established on the throne after him. That son, Solomon, would build the temple. The throne of David and Solomon would be established forever. Solomon would be disciplined for his disobedience, but God would not remove his loving kindness from him. The Messiah would come from the seed of David. This comes out in 1 Chronicles 17, the other um, account of the Davidic covenant. And the Messiah's throne, house, and kingdom will be established forever. One thing that everybody agrees on, no matter what their theological perspective is, that the fulfillment of this covenant is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's nice when you come to a point of theology where everybody's in agreement. doesn't happen often, all the time. But on the Davidic covenant, everybody is in agreement. The fulfillment of this covenant is in the person of Jesus Christ. The question is, when and how? 
does Jesus fulfill it. But there is no question, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant. So again, the summary statement in verse 16, an eternal house. That means that David will always have a physical descendant on earth who could take the throne. And we know that was true all the way up to the days of Jesus. The promise is not that there will always be a throne that he can sit on until the day of Jesus. The promise is that the descendants of David will never be annihilated until the fulfillment of this covenant comes. And so we have at various times, especially during the days of Ahab and Jezebel, when Jezebel's daughter Athaliah did all she could to destroy the physical descendants of David. And God's promise here is that would never happen. And so Jesus comes as a literal, physical descendant of David. And so he could claim the throne because he was a direct line of succession to David. By the way, in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, with the destruction of the temple went all the genealogical records. And so after 70 AD, no Jew could absolutely prove which tribe or which family he came from. He can prove he's a Jew, but he cannot prove which of the 12 tribes he came from. So my friend Jerry Benjamin, who preaches here occasionally in the fall, last name is Benjamin, and he's Jewish, and he likes to call himself a Benjamite. But he can't prove it, because all those records were destroyed in 70 A.D., which means that no person today or since 70 A.D. who came claiming to be the king could prove it. And yet the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant has to be by someone who can claim to be king, who can prove it. So that's one of the reasons we know that the Messiah has already come. And we are not waiting for his first coming. We're waiting for his second coming. So the, 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 an eternal house has to do with the physical descendants of David. And a throne that will endure forever. This has to do with David's right to sit on the throne. Or his descendants' right to sit on the throne. Because remember again, we might be able to argue that, that Saul, as a Benjamite, that he also has physical descendants that have continued to endure forever. That's true. But the descendants of Saul have no right to the throne. And that's, so that's the eternal throne. Not only would there be descendants of David that would continue to exist up to the time of Christ, but those descendants would have the right to the throne. And no other descendants, no other f- tribe of Israel could make that claim. An eternal kingdom, which means that Israel, because he sits over Israel, that Israel will endure forever. And there are so many prophecies that deal with this in Scripture. And so we know, that doesn't say that there will always be somebody to sit on David's throne as far as actually sitting on it. There have been periods of interruption. And it doesn't mean that there will always be in existence Israel. There have been periods of interruption. But the people of Israel continue to exist. The house of David continues to exist. And Israel knew that even though there were lapses and interruptions to somebody actually sitting on the throne, they knew the Davidic covenant was still in play. 
And that's why at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are saying to Jesus, because he's been speaking about the coming kingdom of God over Israel for 40 days. And the disciples' question was, is it at this time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they understood the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. And just because there's been a period of interruption, it doesn't mean that the Davidic covenant failed. God's covenants and God's promises don't fail. And so, and they were looking for a literal fulfillment of that. Everything in this prophecy, everything in this covenant is literal. When God says that you will not build me a temple, your son will build me a temple. Your son is going to sin. I will discipline your son, but I will not take away the throne from him. All of that is literal. So when God says, I'm going to give you an eternal throne with an eternal descendant, why would that not be literal as well? Because the question is only, is there going to be a physical, literal kingdom of David over Israel in which one of his descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ, rules over Israel and over this earth? Or is it all spiritual? It's not all spiritual. There are spiritual implications to everything God says. But this covenant was understood by the Jewish people as being literal, not spiritual. That there would be a literal reign of David's son over Israel and over this earth that would never come to an end. So this is very, very important um, covenant. It instructs Israel and, and by extension us in all of what God has been doing throughout the history of this world. This Davidic covenant assured David that his political rule as well as his physical posterity would continue forever, even though it might be interrupted at times, just as the possession of the land was temporarily interrupted. Israel was cast off the land for 70 years. That didn't mean that, there, that the land promise that God made failed. There is no indication that this kingdom extended to a spiritual entity such as the church, nor that the throne in view is the throne of God in heaven rather than the throne of David on earth. There's nothing in this passage that would indicate that. And all the other Old Testament prophecies indicate that there's a literal throne of David that's in view. We saw that it's all about God and what he will do. God is the first person subject of the 23 verbs that are in this passage. David was full of what he was going to do for God. And he is now brought to a comprehensive rehearsal of what God has done, is doing, and will do for David. Which is pretty amazing. Now, David is awed. He is humbled. He started out saying, I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, no, you're not. Doesn't even tell him why. Just says, not you, your son. It won't be until, until later on in David's life, when David's talking to his son Solomon, that David says to Solomon, this is why God told me I couldn't build a house. But in this passage, God doesn't tell him. Just says, not you. But what God does say to him, I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to do for you 
infinitely more than you could ever do for me. I hope you're beginning to see the spiritual parallels here. What God wants to do for us is far beyond anything we could do for him. What God has in his mind for us is beyond anything we could ask or think. It's not a bad thing to want to do for God. But it is pathetic in comparison to what God wants to be and do for us. So after David hears all this, in verse 18, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. You know how it is when you get really bad news? And you're just thunderstruck. You didn't see it come. And all you can do is just sit down. That's how David's response is with getting really good news. He just sits down. What a great response. And I don't know how long he sat, but I think it's probably a while. He's just, just letting this be absorbed, what he has just heard from God. And his thought is not on what he can't do that he wanted to do. And see, we get so much occupied with what we can't do that we want to do. And David here is just awed, dumbstruck with what God is going to do for him. And so then he finally speaks and he says, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And that you're going to establish my house, my throne, my kingdom forever? Man, he's humbled and he's filled with praise. I tend to think here, that though this Davidic covenant pertained to David and his family, the promise that God makes to you and I, you and me, better grammar, is no different. It is unconditional. It is eternal. It is far beyond anything that we can ask or think. We don't deserve it. It is pure grace. And it is never going to be undone. So when God says to us, believe and you shall be saved. And then he follows it up and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you are faithless, I will remain faithful. We should hear how God talks to David, how God talked to Abraham. Same language. My loving kindness will never depart from you. You may sin. You may commit iniquity. I will discipline you, but I will never withdraw my loving kindness from you. I will never break covenant with you. It is sure. Verse 24, David says, You have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, God, confirm it forever. And do as you have spoken. 
that your name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and may the house of your servant David be established before thee. This is, this is just tremendous prayer. He just is just soaking in what God has said, I will do for you. God, do what you said. This is the same language of Mary as she has been told by the angel what God is going to do. And she says, be it done unto me according to your word. Not so that I can revel in your blessing, but that you can be magnified on this earth. When people look and see what God did, and no explanation for it other than him. Verse 27, O For thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Tremendous, tremendous covenant. Psalm 89 is the psalm of the Davidic covenant. It wasn't written by David. Written by Ethan. But it's a great summary and Exposition on what God is saying to David in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 89.3, God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. In verse 20, I have found David, my servant. Um, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. And then in verse 26 and down through the next verses, I will cry, he will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn. You can see the language here is what's being applied later to Jesus is initially applied to David and each king after him. The highest of the kings of the earth, my loving kindness I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of the heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, and that's the condition, it's a condition for blessing, not a condition for the fulfillment of the covenant, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their, and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate. You may violate it, I will not violate it. Nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have spoken by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It will be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Man, you can take it to the bank. And that's why David is sitting before God, humbled. God is going to do for 
David what David could never come close to doing for God. And let me just give you some observations and lessons that speak to me with this tremendous account of God's dealing with David. First, a word about good desires. Building a temple for God was not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Nothing sinful about it. Didn't anger God, didn't displease God. God just didn't ask for it. But it was a good thing. And it was unfulfilled. There may be good desires, good desires, that each of us in this room have. And if we just sat around, especially those of us with gray hair and white hair, and talked about some of the good desires we had in the course of our lives that were not fulfilled. Good desires are not always fulfilled. Doesn't mean something's wrong. Good desires are not always God's will for us. At least not at this time. Maybe later, after this life is over, God will fulfill some of those desires. But sometimes they just simply are not God's will to fulfill. So you can see this this kind of rubs us the wrong way because we've been, been taught and heard so many times that that if every desire that you have, God wants to fulfill it, that he puts those desires in you. Maybe he doesn't intend to fulfill them through you. Maybe he's going to fulfill them through someone else. This is why we need to be so careful about just assuming every good desire is God's will for us to pursue. Boy, you can run off chasing things that God never intended for you to chase. Good desires don't necessarily equate with God's calling for us. Somebody can say, man, I just, I feel, I really, really want to preach. But God never enables you, never brings it to pass that you are a preacher. This is going to get politically incorrect, but I do that from time to time. Sometimes I I hear directly or indirectly, in particular a woman who will say, God has called me to preach, to teach men. She has a desire, and I don't question a God-given desire, to teach to handle God's word. But God has said, that desire is not going to be fulfilled the way you think it's going to be fulfilled. If you think that desire is going to be fulfilled by being in a position of leadership in a church, you're mistaken. Doesn't mean the desire is wrong. It just means God says it's not going to be fulfilled the way you think it's going to be fulfilled. And what's wrong? with having the ministry that God wants you to have. And just because you have a desire doesn't mean that it's God's calling the way you think it is. Live within the boundaries that God has given. 
God placed boundaries on David, not you. Why can't he do that for us? See, those are two words we think that God will never say to us. Not you. Really? I think we're going to be disappointed. Our best and highest ambitions and effort for God are nothing in comparison to what God wants to do for us, in us, and through us. And when it's all said and done, we're not going to be looking back and going, what did we, look what we did for God. We look back and say, I am dumbfounded by what God did for me. It far surpasses anything I could have ever done for him. And not the least being our salvation. God wants to do an eternal work in and through each of us. It is his longing for God to be God in our lives and for us to put aside our small thoughts about what we can do for God. We've all seen the monstrous buildings that have cost tens of millions, sometimes in excess of $100 million that we build to the glory of God. Because we don't want God to dwell in a paltry place. Hundreds of millions of dollars we can spend honoring God. And God saying, I'd really like to honor you. There's nothing you can ultimately do for me. But I'd sure like for you to be a receiver of what I can do for you. And we look back and we're not driving past a building and saying, look what we did for God. We're looking in the rearview mirror of our lives and going, it is amazing what God has done for me. God's work is eternal. It will last forever. All the works of God are everlasting, Scripture says. God's work is unconditional and it is certain. God's work is purely by His grace. And God's work is both spiritual and physical. Just as we look at these covenants and there was an immediate fulfillment, partially, but there was an ultimate and final fulfillment later. The same thing is true with us in our walks with God. It isn't all just for when we go to heaven. Neither is it all for right now. There is a literal and immediate fulfillment of what God wants to do in our lives now. But it will ultimately we wait for the future when we will see it all brought to fruition. There is a not yet to our faith. The consequences of God's work, one, He is glorified and praised. When God does the work, God is glorified and God is praised, not people. And we, secondly, are blessed and humbled. What a simple way to determine whether God is doing the work or not. Who's getting the credit? Who's getting humbled? Who's getting the blessing? When God does the work, God gets the praise and glory. We get the blessing, 
and we get humbled. And that's the way God's work is done. Living in God's will may preempt us, exclude us from certain opportunities and the fulfillment of certain desires. What do I mean by that? It is in 1 Chronicles 22.8 that David says to Solomon, By the way, the reason I couldn't build the temple is because God said you have shed much blood. Now we read that, and I, so many times I've heard people say, David couldn't build the temple because he murdered Uriah the Hittite. Not true. David couldn't build the temple because he was a warrior. And the people that he killed, with the exception of Uriah, he killed in the will of God, beginning with Goliath. And it was because he had killed so many people in the will of God. He did nothing but be obedient to God when it came to warfare. Every battle he went into, God, do you want me to go in this battle? Yep, go into this battle. Are you going to give victory? Yep, I'm going to give victory. Little did he know that all of those victories would mean he will not be able to build the temple. He functioned as God wanted him to function. And now did nothing other than be obedient to God by faith. And God is saying, not you. Even our obedience has consequences that sometimes we don't like. He was a man of bloodshed by the will of God. And he cannot build the temple. Everything that we desire to do, coming back to that point, is not necessarily God's will for us. An unrealized dream, like David's unrealized dream of building the temple, may bring about immense blessing. And it did for David. There is nothing we have relinquished in obedience which will not be rewarded with glory. And if there are things we cannot do, because God says, not you, so what? There is nothing that God withholds that will not be far exceedingly surpassed with God's glory. If you can't do something because God is saying, not you, do what David did and help the guy that can. And David's going to spend the rest of his time on earth getting ready for the building of the temple. Amazing. God said, not you. But that doesn't mean he can't quarry the stones, can't cut the timbers, can't start making the, the priestly garments, can't get all the other things ready. And David spent millions of dollars and an immense amount of time getting everything ready for Solomon. So God says, not you. We had a teacher in Bible college who taught how to teach. She was a woman. I thank God for her. God used her immensely. 
She understood without bitterness, without any sense of she's been cheated. This is a woman gifted by God to teach. And she did not teach men the Bible. She did not teach men theology. But she taught a lot of men how to teach. She couldn't, but she helped those who could. Maybe you can't go to the mission field and you really feel like, man, God, I just, just so much you put this in me to go. But you can't go. Help those who can. There may be something in your life where you just want to. And God, this is one of the reasons I think God puts desires in us and then we can't see them fulfilled. It's because God wants us to assist those who can fulfill those and get behind them. This is one of the things the church is, how the church is supposed to function. And so you have different desires of the congregation. We need to see this church do X, Y, and Z. And then sometimes, many times, not this church, but many times the church, people will come to the leadership and go, get it going. And it's backwards. And see, the leadership is going to go, if they're functioning as the way they should, man, we recognize that God's done that, but we can't fulfill that thing. But we're going to help you do it. This is one of the reasons we, we give money to the church. is so that we can help and, and assist and facilitate those who can. And a healthy church is not looking to the leadership to do everything. God didn't design it that way. There are certain things they aren't supposed to do. But the body is supposed to do. And so we need to assist, facilitate, help them to do what God has put on their hearts to do when we can't. David never complained with God saying no. The purpose of his heart was thwarted, but he was overcome with God's promised blessing. Rejoice in what God has promised to do. Rejoice in the eternal plan God has for us. We can spend our lives complaining. I, li- I saw and listened to just an amazing video this week. wasn't planning on seeing it. Just Somebody sent me a little video clip to look at, and there was a link to another one. And it was about prisoners in life, without any hope, of, in, in prison for life, without no hope of parole. And these different men who have come to faith in Christ. And just amazing, amazing. Just to see in their countenance, these are men that are free while living behind bars for the rest of their lives. Who can't do anything by their own choice but they're free. And the one man said, there's one thing you never run out of in life, and that's other people to blame. And he stopped blaming other people. He's free. And we can so easily as Christians spend our lives complaining, miserable, because of the unfulfilled desires. That wasn't David. God said, not you. Someone else. It's powerful. Rejoice in what God has promised to do. See, I can spend my life complaining about what I can't do. These men can't even take, go to the bathroom in privacy. There's five other men lined up on toilets next to them when they go to the bathroom. They have had everything taken away from them. But they're not complaining 
Because now their hearts have been captivated not by what they can't do any longer, but by, but by what God can do in their own hearts and in the hearts of others. And finally, God withholds the lesser to give the greater. Our desires, other than simply a desire to know Jesus Christ, our desires to do great things for God, they are nothing in comparison with what God desires to do for us. It was D.L. Moody that said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one person totally yielded to him. That's a true statement. But as a young man in Bible college, when I read that, I said, I want to be that man. Didn't begin to see how dripping in egotism and pride that was. Now I do. And now I'm just saying, God, I just don't want to blaspheme your name. I just want to walk humbly with you. And I want to look back in my life and not say, I am the one who lived a totally yielded life. I want to look back and say, look what God has done. Humbles us. Blesses us. He is God. And there is so much that he has done and is longing to do for those who will simply receive and believe him. Dare to trust him. Sit before him and let his assurances comfort you and bless you. I'll close this in prayer.